I believe the time is 753. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm never gonna ever. I'll be there for the live on time. <laughs> the fuck you will. <laughs> hey, you I'll be with Brennan. I'll have him. Well, you, you gotta be because I'm not bringing any tech shit. So it's just That's gonna true. be me sitting in a That's fucking chair having conversations with people. Boom, motherfuckers. I'll have this shit set up. I mm. hope. We're, no, we're just gonna tell you the time is like six o'clock when it's really seven. Then hopefully oh. you can be there by 6 30. That's good because I got dog time. I don't know what that means. It means dogs don't know how to keep track of any time because the concept doesn't register to them. That is 100% a term that you made up just now. Awesome. Ooh, 7.53. You were spot on, Brian. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's why I brought that up. <laughs> you were spot on. The funny <laughs> thing is that it told me the host joined at like 7.51. He just didn't fucking do anything. But Same. Because I was yeah. like, are, are yeah. we not here or what? Oh, shit, what was I going to say? You're going to say chicken butt. Dear Lord, who let you on here? We got 20 seconds. <clears throat> you can invite him. Oh, I'm still writing something down. I was hoping you guys had more. Oh, then don't fucking that. give us a clock when it's... I was ready an hour ago, man. We have I eight was seconds. born ready. I was born Four, ready. Three, two. Brennan, chicken butt. Fucking kill you. <laughs> Take a number, buddy. <laughs> a long line, I'm sure. Probably. Yeah. At least I'm cute. Hi, okay. Rich. Yeah. Hey. Welcome back to Dead Headspace, everybody. This is episode 212. We have a third time returning guest. His name is Richard Shizmar. Say hello, Richard. Hey, how are you? Of course, my name is Patrick R. McDonough, and my two friends that host this show with me are Candace Nola. Say hello, Candace. Hello. And Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, sir. Hello, everybody. First time, just for anyone that wants to check out other Richard Chismark content, first time we had him on was 2021, early season two. Uh, next time was January 31st. It was... Uh, that opened up season three. So needless to say, we um, we're fans of Rich, and I mean, we just become more uh, ardent fans of your work, man. For real, like becoming the boogeyman to me felt like uh, with that in book one was like looking at if it was in film, Halloween one and two. It just feels like two parts of the same extended, you know, story. Um, I want to know if. Because I think we touched on this. If there's gonna be a a next book when we had John last, uh, I want to know if you were nervous writing this. What? No, actually, I got a question. I don't. I don't know if you've been asked this before. I'd love to know. Were you more nervous tampering with a sequel to what is a great book? Like, were you nervous that like, hey, I have a lot to live up to, or were you more nervous writing with Stephen King? <laughs> With King, for sure, <laughs> but only in the beginning. I mean, like I, I've said before, only only that first, uh, literally those first like, you know, half a day, and then the, all those nerves went away. But yeah, no, I was scared to death to do that. Yeah, yeah. This this wasn't a big deal. I didn't think I didn't really give much thought to a sequel. And and Simon and Schuster was enthusiastic, but they really after Boogeyman, after the first Boogeyman, I signed a two book deal with them. And 
they wanted to have the standalone come next and then the sequel. And I kind of just, I had already started working on the sequel and I really wanted to write cool. that and be done and have it be published next. So, and, and I understand their concerns, you know, because sequels are tricky things. Number one, to kind of <clears throat> measure up to the first one. And then even sales wise, you know, mm. they're tricky um, that, you know, historically they don't sell as well and they don't, you know, they're not as received as well, blah, blah, blah. Same thing with movies. So, yeah, I you know I think other people were a little bit more nervous than I was. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm kind of too just happy go lucky to get nervous about that. I I've learned after 35 years, you know, editorially, you, you know, you're never going to make everyone happy, so just make yourself happy and, and go with that. I love that <laughs> they don't they're not as received as well. They're not they don't sell as well. But you you went down that route anyway. Now. When we talked about chasing and and Patrick and I both absolutely loved that book. Um you. you did something so original with that that mix of true crime and fiction with uh, while also kind of touching on that uh HG Wells War of the Worlds radio telecast where I would imagine to this day you still get a little bit of like hey man like was that real like did that happen? Every, yeah, every so, day honestly. <laughs> that's fantastic. So when you when you hit the sequel, what kind of steps did you take to basically take that unique approach to writing a book and take it to the next level? What, what did you want to add to this one to really just make it special compared to the first one? You know what? I I, uh, I didn't. Again, I'm going to come on here and, and not sound nearly as smart as I should be trying to sound. Um, but I really just follow the story. And, and that's something that I actually, you know, I, I think I've always done that out of lack of, of, of whatever it is, you know, foresight or whatever, um, skill, brains. Um, I've just always followed the story where it takes me without too much thought on whether it's going to be well received or be successful. So for this one, it was just, you know, I had the idea. I had no intentions of writing a sequel. One day I, I got the idea full fledged for the first chapter of becoming the boogeyman. Um, and the big thing for me was the reveal that that occurs at the end of the first chapter that ties it into chasing the boogeyman. Once I had that idea, I was like, damn, I got to write this book. Um, so I knew I had to play it straight again. I knew that was the only way that I could tell a story was to be playing. You know, this is me again. This is real life. This picks up where chasing the boogeyman left off. Um, you know, Josh Gallagher's in jail and in prison rather. And um, I'm going to include pictures and I'm going to play it, you know, straight like like this is a true crime book again. Um, I did, you know, in, in the beginning, like you asked, what did I want to do? You know, did I did I what did I what thought process was involved to kind of take it to the next level? The only thing I really did besides make that decision that I was going to play it straight and have photos was I wanted to capture some of that same nostalgic feel that was in the first book. And, and that's where Edgewood looking back, which is the fictional book that I excerpt throughout the, uh, throughout in between the chapters of becoming the boogeyman. That's where that came from. And I had a little concern that, uh, is, is the book going to be a little too busy like this photographs, excerpts. Um, I have excerpts of interviews with, with prison guards and Joshua Gallagher's friends and relatives and him, Joshua himself. Um, but in the end, I just, you know, I, I just thought it, it reads as seamless as I think it can, and it didn't distract from me. And and once my agent and publisher, you know, read it, they agreed. I was like, yeah, we'll see what happens. But yeah, like you know, that's a long-winded way of saying I'm probably not smart enough to kind of plan out how I'm going to take this book to the next level. So I just told the story that was in front of me and, and went with it, you know, like that. 
I, I, I love the idea of, um, you know, you said the, um, oh, I want to call them interludes. That's not the word you used, but the, um, it is. Uh, the, okay. It, um, it is. Yeah. I, 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 at least in the manuscript, I don't know if that made it into the book, probably not, but in my, in my mock-up table of contents, it was interlude one, two, three. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you're reading. It might mind. just be that I have Monday brain and I heard a different <laughs> word, but, um, <laughs> You know, when we talked about the first book, we talked about that authenticity of, you know, Edgewood coming to life because you 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 know that you know that town. It's it's where you grew up, it's where you lived, and you really brought it to the page. And those interludes add that authenticity to, you know, that almost kind of surreal story. And, you know, one one part that I feel like you must have had a blast writing that I really enjoyed was the Chizapalooza. And oh. I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. I gotta yeah, I, I did this on an earlier show, so I'm sorry you guys didn't get the scoop, but this is the T-shirt design that I had printed up for <laughs> uh, for my for the big uh, launch party that we're having here, and it's a Chisapalooza T-shirt 2023. Um, I did have a lot of fun writing that section, and, and most of the stuff in there is is – you know, I'll take some abuse for that. I, and I did tone it down. But yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be called an idiot by some of the uh, more mature reading groups. Um, but yeah, that's that's my that encapsulates my friends and I right there in, in a nutshell. Um, just a bunch of dumb big kids and, uh, you know, <laughs> enjoying life. And um, and yeah, it it, uh, you know, my editor, who who is brilliant. Um, you know, he had some thoughts about that and he wondered if it took him out, took us out of the story. And I said, well, I'm going to, you know, kind of tweak it a little bit. So it's more of a part of the story. And and really that was my, kind of my secret way of making sure that it was not going to be taken out. Cause I, I wanted, I wanted that chapter in there very badly. And, um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it, it, it stayed. I did have a blast writing it. And, and those guys are all coming to the big launch party. So I already told them, I said, get ready to sign some T-shirts. Um, now, you, you, you mentioned that your main approach to this was just follow the story. And I think that's an admirable approach because I think that there are not, not that there aren't a lot of writers these days that are just pure storytellers, but, you know, when when that idea comes to mind, I think of people like Stephen King. I think of people like Joe Lansdale and to basically avoid the, the notion of overthinking this and just kind of follow the story where it leads you. I think that's a really good approach. Now, as far as that's concerned, one thing that I really liked about this is you were not afraid you know you put yourself you're the first person character you're the main character and you're not afraid to kind of make the richard chismar of the book flawed i i mean oh, like yeah. yeah not not everybody thinks that you're this like brilliant writer genius you know chronicling the you know um the boogeyman story uh there's a there's a lot of even my wife uh, doesn't at you you know, my wife doesn't think that in the book and Carly certainly doesn't. So yeah, no, that was fun to kind of poke that, that, that fun at myself and, and to have people call me a hack. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, and again, you know, uh, I, and I tried to do that in the first book, you know, even though I wasn't a successful writer at that point, you know, in 88, I was just a kid out of college. Um, I, I tried to be as honest as I could when it came to how I would react to the murders, how I would react to what was happening in my town, even when it didn't necessarily, you know, shine a, a positive light on myself. 
Um, and, and I think I took that a step further with this book and, and I was really trying to kind of explore that dynamic that, that exists about, you know, why guys like us and, and women like us, you know, like this stuff, you know, why are we attracted to the dark side? Why do we like horror fiction and movies? And, uh, at the same time, drawing a very clear, distinctive line between the people who are so obsessed with true crime that they're, you know, walking around with T-shirts that have, you know, murders, uh, you know, embossed on the back of them, Charlie Manson or whoever. You know, it's one thing to wear, you know, Michael Myers on the back of your shirt. It's another thing to to wear a shirt that has Ted Bundy on the back, um, you know, in, inside the shape of a heart or something. And, and, and I kind of, you know had you know it was interesting to play around with that whole dynamic uh of of where that line is and and you know i think i said there's people out there with dark intentions who who are very interested in true crime and horror fiction and they're very different than us fortunately i think that's some good social commentary you know you keep saying hey i'm gonna come off as you know just kind of flying by the seat of my pants but that's a that's a really good conversation to have is where do we draw the line um, obviously we got Michael Myers way over here. We've got Ted Bundy way over here, but when we meet in the middle, where do we kind of find, you know, that separation? Uh, I've been hogging Candace. I'd like to throw it to you. Um, <laughs> sure. Just throw me in the middle. <laughs> um, well, Rich, <laughs> I will admit I, um, I thought it was a horror deal. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. That makes me happy. So you nailed it. As far as that goes, I got all the way to the end and I was like, wait a minute. But I started to get confused about, I don't know, maybe halfway through because you were making a lot of mentions of Pittsburgh. And all this was in like 2019. And I'm reading it like, wait, how did I miss this? I started looking for things like, did I miss something here? So yeah, um, you certainly nailed the the whole true crime feel. Everything that was in it worked well because I was I was all in. Like I I was reading all the parts and the interviews and everything. I probably tore through the book in about a day and a half. Because I wanted to see what was happening next and what was going to take place next. Um, to touch on the Chizapalooza part. <laughs> yes. I loved it. Good. Good. Um, I actually thought it worked very well because in the midst of a high tension situation that you put yourself in, some sort of stress relief sort of event or moment would be expected, if not justified. And you having that in there, I think, made it a lot more realistic, too. Just that moment of just unwinding and being with your friends and the way you wrote everything that happened. <laughs> it, it it felt so real in the way your kids were in there and you guys drawing on each other's faces and just yeah. everything that happened. You it, know, my, it, my it, argument for my editor, I'm sorry to interrupt you, was that no, you're fine. was was that and because I love that you're saying this, it makes me it makes me happy. Um was just that just like in horror movies you got to have those moments of levity to mm -hmm. make the dark stuff and the and the jump scares and all that stuff you know it, it, that much more impactful 
And, yeah. and I, I tried to make it as realistic as I could, not only the goofiness, but, but what, you know, my wife and Carly encouraging it, you mm-hmm. know, being, being the smarter of the, you know, hopefully right. people read the book and realize that uh, although there are, are women who are killed in this book, um, because this killer's targeting them, they'll see how strong these female characters are. And, and again, that wasn't intentional. My, my right. wife, she's a tough lady, and Carly, just like in the first book, you know, she's kind of a composite of my sisters and and friends and and, and some strong women in my life. Um, I, I loved the fact that it was them who convinced me to go ahead and do this. And, yeah. and that's something that would happen in real life. I was, I'm the youngest of five kids. I got yeah. three four sisters. So I'm number one, I'm used to being bossed around even now. Um, yeah. And, and two, it, it, you know, they're, uh, I'll always, you know, be the first in line to say that, that, you know, with, with women come wisdom um, in most cases. So I love the fact that they were the one who nudged me, go ahead and be with your knucklehead friends, because if you yeah. don't combust, and, and it was Carly who figured out how to sneak them in and all that. So anyway, I, you can you keep going. But I was I wanted to interrupt because it, I'm glad that you thought it worked and that it actually helped the story. Yeah, it did. Um, I, I just think it was a very realistic part of it. And it's certainly one of those things that would tend to take place in a situation like that, because if you if there isn't those moments you're going to explode like the stress and the tension and everything just builds and builds and builds and if you don't have something in there you you kind of need that and I think that really hit home like it just made everything sound and feel that much more realistic because I was like in the middle of this story now don't forget I thought all of this was happening for a while so I was like Oh my God. But this is one of those things where it was just like, here you are and you have all this family and your friends are in. And it seems like even if that was not a planned event, I feel like your friends would have appeared at that point anyway and been like, we're here. We got you. We're going to help you with this. And it would have naturally evolved into a sort of friend reunion just hang out and chill and kind of let some of that stress out it's just one of those natural things that take take place when you have a support system like that in place right and that that is why i liked it as much as i did because i was like this is entirely natural and relatable and it just brought so much more to just everybody in there that i i just thought it was great on that note um, as far as the true crime approach, nailed it because I'll be honest, I didn't get a chance to read the first one. I've been reading through <laughs> Wendy and everything else and Good. all of my own stuff. And I absolutely thought that all of this was happening to you. And I also felt bad because I was like, all oh, this was happening. And I was interviewing him for House of Stitch and I was doing this. And <laughs> I was thinking back to like all these different things. And I was like, how did I miss? Right. So, yeah, you absolutely nailed it. Um, I do want to know, now that I'm done raving about it, you know, were any parts of this true accounts, whether taken from your childhood, your life, or actual true events that you put in here that maybe happened to somebody but not necessarily happened to you? 
Um, you know, some of the crimes were based on, you know, some of the murders were, were, were roughly based. I mean, there's, that's the thing with serial killers. There's so much research right there at your hands, yeah. you know, fingertips that you can, that you can pull up. Um, so it's inevitable that so I didn't, I didn't take any specific murder and model, you know, one of my okay. characters, murders, you know, after it, but I'm sure different pieces, you know, um, something I did try to do was find things that I had never read about. You know, there's a mm-hmm. scene in the book where I'm talking about. Um, this infamous, you know, uh, serial murderer who who plays a, a secondary role in the book. And I talked about how he was eating his victim's hair. You know, I'd never read anything like that, but I, I, thought, I thought it, I put it in and it bothered the hell out of me for like the next two weeks while I was writing. Cause I just kept, it's such a visual thing. Yeah. Which for someone putting clumps of hair in their mouth and chewing it and swallowing it that I couldn't get it out of my mind for a couple of weeks. So I knew, that was, you know, so that was something I went in prepared. If, if, if anyone tries to take that out, I'm not letting them, but nobody did, um, which is great. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the uh, the interludes, as, as far as the excerpts from Edgewood, looking back, the nostalgic mm-hmm. stuff, a lot of that stuff really happened. Um, okay. I won't say which one didn't, because um, I don't want to have a spoiler in there, but just like Chasing okay. with the Boogeyman, I drew so much of that directly from childhood memories. And yeah. um, I, I just, I, I, again, I wanted that expansion into the second book of that whole angle of, of letting the reader really get to know not only me and my friends, but the town as a whole, because it, it makes, it makes what Joshua Gallagher has done to the town um, past and present, just that much more uh, sinister, you know, you, you yeah. I think a lot, I heard from a lot of people, regarding the first book that they felt like they knew Edgewood. They felt like they grew up in a town like Edgewood. They wish they had grown up in a town like Edgewood. So when that's the case, I think, I think just like when someone loves a character, they, they care that much more when they love or they feel at home in a place, they feel the same way. So that's why I I really wanted to have those in there. Um, But yeah, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to talk like a month after the book's out. So I can tell you, you know, an expansion on some of those true stories and they're, you know, they're ridiculous. They're little boys, you know, they're, they're teenage. And, uh, but yeah, it was fun to go back and draw from, you know, memory banks and and put it down on paper before, before I get old and senile and forget it all. Nice. Um, Patrick, you want to jump in? Yeah. So just like your character, uh, Fake rich, we'll call him. When he, <laughs> when he so real quick is uh, I grew up in a town similar to Edgewood. It's Bridgewater, Massachusetts, suburban town in in Mass. And uh, when I returned there, years after moving from out of New England, I uh, I took a walk with my wife, and so much changed. The playground oh. literally is not; it's leveled. There's a fence around an empty spot that used to be a playground. A lot of new developments. Long story short, I could relate because it's interesting. Um, your town is. Brennan actually talked about this with another guest. How the town's a character, but it it's true in this story too, because it ages just like other places like Baltimore. I know it used to be more beautiful, and now it's not to not not to knock it because that's your capital. But I, I know it's gone through a lot. Um, Atlantic City, where I work, you know, where I'm right near that, that town's changed a lot for the worse. So like Edgewood, you describe it as not, you don't know what this town is. It's not where you grew up and it's a different world. So I wanted to know if you had any, any comments on that. 
Yeah, just just that again, I tried to portray it as as honestly and as fairly as I could. Um, some things just for someone who loves nostalgia like me, mm-hmm. um, unabashed, you know, uh appeal to me. Um, you, you people like me are never gonna like change, especially with something that you hold that close to your heart, whether it's a baseball stadium or it's your hometown or whether it's just, you know, you, the, the house you grew up in, you're mm-hmm. just, you know, I'm always going to drive by and think where the hell are my green shutters? Um, that kind of thing. Um, but you know, what's interesting is, is I heard from people on the first chase in the Boogeyman. They're like, Hey, that's not the edge what I grew up in. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm writing about 1988. I'm writing about the seventies when I was, you know, younger in these, the coming of age stories. Um, I don't know where you grew up in Edgewood, depending on where you grew up, you could be accurate or I could be accurate. But at the same time, the point is, and I talk about that in that book, um, you know, truth is always just dependent on, you know, it's a subjective thing there. It, it, to me, it's all about the eyes that are, that are seeing it. And then the hands that are, you know, writing the words as far as the truth of, of how they see something. So did I turn uh, Edgewood into a little bit more of a wonder years type neighborhood. Yeah. But everything I wrote is true. You, you know, we spent the night at each other's houses and snuck out at 10 PM and ran around the streets until two in the morning. And we weren't worried, you know, we were worried about like monsters and stuff, but we weren't worried about getting robbed or mugged or anything like that. You know, 10 years later. Yeah. You had, you know, there's now you have something to worry about. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I tried to be fair knowing that a lot of, you know, Edgewood folks are going to read this. Um, I almost put in a longer, you know, uh, um, you know, paragraph in my in my uh, uh, acknowledgments to, to essentially say, hey, you know, I might have been a little hard on Edgewood at times in this, but I, I do think I was being fair. And, you know, we just all have work to do. You know, I it, it's it's true. You know, the, the folks who who still live there, the folks who have moved out, who still, you know, it's close to their heart. I, I give a scholarship every year to a graduate from Edgewood High School in my father's name. You know, that's my way of giving back. I tried to, um, I did an event recently that I really had no time to do because I'm trying to finish this new book and I got a lot of things going on, but, it, you know, it was Edgewood based. So I said, yes, because I'm going to say yes. Um, and that's what I mean. You know, we all have a lot of work to do and there's, there's, yeah, there's drugs there now, there's violence and there's, but there's still neighborhoods where the houses are kept up really nice and it's safe. And it's just that the, uh, you know, the wrong side of the, the tracks has kind of expanded some, um, and like so many neighborhoods, you know, working class neighborhoods, the houses aren't as well kept as they once were and that kind of thing. So in that regard, yeah, it's sad. You know, I, I still I'm still there all the time. Um, mm. But and I tried to get this across through Carly. It's still home, you know, Carly, who in the book has traveled the world and, and she worked for the post and then she didn't. And she's been all over the place. And she kind of has that realization in that chapter where it's just like, this is where I grew up. This is where my parents were, hmm. you know, live their life and, 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 and end their lives. And, and for all those reasons, this will always be home. And she says, I want to bring my daughters here. And I'm kind of looking at her for the first time, like, huh, you know, um, so, yeah, I try to get that across because it'll always have that feeling for me, no matter what. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was interesting. And, and that there was thought that was put into that because I want, like I said, for, you know, the fifth time now, I wanted to be fair, but I also, you know, wanted to be, uh, you know, be compassionate too. Sure. Sure. I get that. Uh, two more questions. One's fairly quick. Peter Atkins is in there. Um, that's after screenplay uh mm-hmm. legend right peter i can tell razor two yeah, three really four that's awesome um okay so no i guess uh no no comment on that i i want to know what you think about peter for those that 
it, I find it really cool when there's a writer you that I like that likes another writer I like. So I just want to hear your thoughts on what you think as a fan of Peter. Oh, he's just a good storyteller. I mean, that's that's what I like there, and and that's usually what the writers I'm attracted to are. are you know, it's interesting because you have. I know two of your favorites on the show are, are Peter Straub, who who we've lost, and, uh, yeah. and Joe Hensdale. Yeah. And to me, they are like, um, they could not be more different. Yeah, as far as, yeah, yeah. You know, One, I always, I always bring up Peter as you know he was this ultimate stylist and and just wrote with such flourish and mm. and he should have written with a word processor it should have been like with a quill pen and i have had great conversations with peter in the past with his jazz music blasting in the background mm. and and he's just like this mad freaking scientist um and then there's joe who i you know I, he's been one of my favorite writers forever um i think when it comes to just pure storyteller he's, he's as good as we have yeah yeah I, I I strongly suspect. Um, I think he has a book on writing. I, I'm not sure, but I've never read it. I, I he's working to. on it. It's a memoir. He's working on it? Okay. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, to me, I I, I doubt he's someone who outlines much. I, I have a feeling he just he doesn't. <laughs> goes and 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 I respect that. And I, you know what, I outlined the hell out of Chasing the Boogeyman because the ideas came so fast. I had to put them down on paper. I was afraid that I would uh I would lose my my track. Um, and, and I would lose, you know, plot points that were important um, because I'm old. And uh, but uh, with Boogeyman, I, with Becoming the Boogeyman, I didn't really have to do that. And the book I'm writing now, I literally outline like a couple chapters and then I just go. And then if, if that starts happening, I start having too many ideas. I'll outline a couple of more chapters. But really, I'm just I, I texted, you know, Steve King and I'm just and he asked about it. And I'm just like, dude, I am holding on to the story, you know, by its shirt sleeve and I'm just being dragged because I have no clue, you know, where I'm going. And, and it's been kind of fun and exhilarating that way. It's it, mm. it, you know, doing that with Steve was only became fun after, you know, by the time, it, you know, we were like into book three before that, it was pretty nerve wracking, but <laughs> that one, I was just like, he had, a, and he said ahead of time, he's like, strap yourself in. We don't know where we're going. And I was like, okay, I, you know, I finally listened to him. So but yeah, that, Joe strikes me as like as that kind of a guy and that kind of a storyteller. I just want to comment on Gwendy's final uh, ah, shit chapter. What's book three called? Um, I'm uh, final task. That's it. Gwendy's final task. I'm not gonna spoil it, but the ending legit made me that made me cry. Brennan told me ahead of time because he read it before me. He he as he soon as he it. As soon as he finished it, he texted me. He's like, you got to buy the audiobook because that's how I consume most of the stuff. And uh, I just I got it right away. Listened to it. And holy shit, you guys wrote a hell of a book. Well, three books. You did three. All right. Yeah. Long story short, you did a good job. <laughs> yeah, I think we shed some tears, too. I mean, I know I was very, you know, Steve, I thought Steve was going to write the entire ending and he wrote up to a certain point mm. um and and left me to do you know um uh, th that final you know dot on the i and the final cross on the t and uh yeah i mean i know i was choked up when i was finished and and he you know i think he was the same i i, I actually saved uh, took a screenshot of the text because he's like man we nailed the ending i don't know about the rest but we nailed the ending so yeah thank you yeah i got one more thing and then brennan jump in is uh the one time we had Peter on, we talked about um, uh, Talisman 3, and then 
was like two years ago. And then uh, flash forward to Stephen King going on a great podcast called Talking Scared with Neil McRoberts. And Peter said that, I mean, uh, Steve said that Peter wrote an outline for mm. Talisman 3. Yeah, I didn't know that. And me and Brendan were talking about it. We're like, he had to have done that after so- sometime after we talked to him because it wasn't, you know, wasn't long until after um, right. he departed. And we're just like, that's so cool. I want to, if that book never happens, I just want to read that outline. Uh, Peter is poetic. And then Joe's like a shoot him up with style type of guy, you know? Joe's like, yeah, Joe's a front porch, you know, front porch guy who's just he is. And tell you a story. And, and, uh, and to, and to be honest, I mean, I, I, I obviously I am, much closer to Joe. And I like that. And I, and that's the only way I know how to be. If I tried to be like Peter, I'd be horrible and unreadable. Um, and just, I, you know, I described, uh, chasing the boogeyman is like a campfire story. And mm. to me, and to me becoming the boogeyman is, is just an extension of that. It's the same thing. It's, uh, it, it's just, you know, Hey, gather around and, uh, you know, you hear all that stuff in the woods. That's good. You never know what's out there. And let me tell you this story. Yeah, you certainly build up that. Uh, you talked about the eating the hair thing, but um, like that's super unique and original. But you do that throughout the first book. Not, I'm not saying everything, each step's original and unique or whatever. I'm just saying like you write it so well that uh, it it it's just little moments where it's like in reality. Like I could be in my basement that I'm in right now if the lights are off. That's quiet suspension that kind of outdoes if you were to just see a gory scene. And you, you do that throughout this book too, really well. Um, so you're talking about how you couldn't emulate Peter Straub. I would say no one could emulate what you did. Yeah, well, that'd be cool to think. I just think, you know, again, to me, it's like it's campfire story. So it's not. And I I probably came on the show and talked about it. like when Chasing the Boogeyman was about a week or so away, like like where we are right now. Um, (laughs) I, I I remember, you know, I, I didn't really have any concerns about it. And then I, you know, I, my publisher's telling me, oh, pre-orders are really high. And you, you know, it was getting a lot of buzz and it was about a week or four or two weeks before it was due. And and I remember I had that thought, I was like, oh shit, you know, this is a really traditional story. You know, this is Michael Myers and this is the things that go bump in the night. And it's more about what you don't see. And and that scene where I take the trash out and I just know he's there somewhere watching, <laughs> you know, I'm like, this is a campfire story. Oh, and it's about me. And I had that. I did. I had that. <laughs> the gall, know, sir. The gall. It was only several minutes, but it, it was pretty intense where I was like, holy crap. Who's, who's going to care about this story about this schmuck from Edgewood, Maryland? <laughs> You know, and, and there's absolutely does not reinvent the wheel. There's no, you know, you know, it, it ends up having a great plot twist only because it fooled a lot of people, which is wonderful. And that was my intention. But but again, it, and I feel the same way about becoming the boogeyman. It's it's it's, you know, it's a solid campfire story and there's a lot of heart in it. And um, yeah, like you said, I mean, it, it it's, you know, if someone wants to you know, imitate it. That's, that's great. I would love that. I, I would love seeing, you know, more books like that just because it, it, that's just like with the magazine. I always publish stuff that I'd like to read if it was in someone else's magazine or someone else's anthology. Um, it, you know, that's the simplest way I look at it is, is, you know, I'm doing it because there's not enough other ones out there, but um, with this book, yeah, I, I just, you know, a lot of fun. And, and again, I no intentions to be, 
you know, with Peter, you always felt like he sat down trying to knock it out of the park. And again, if I did that, whew, you know, I think I'd be getting a long phone call from my agent saying, Rich, did you, you know, did you have a head injury when you were, uh, when you were <laughs> writing this book? So. I think there's a lot of merit in, in, in that campfire story vibe though. Um, all right. So I, I've got more boogeyman questions, but I want to take us on a short tangent unless, unless Rich wants to rant and rave. Um, a fair bit of the boogeyman mythos takes place in 1988. I actually want to take us back to 1983, Mm -hmm. which is the last time, if my research is correct, that the Orioles won the world series. Oh, yeah. Cal Cal Ripken's rookie year. Um, So with the, with the, uh, you're not supposed to do crowd shots at the guest. With with the, with the baseball playoffs about a week away, how far do you think the Orioles are going this year? We're going to put you on the spot. Oh, uh, you know what? I I I would never jinx them by saying, uh, <laughs> but I, I think I absolutely think. It, well, you know what? This is probably a cop out answer, but I, the thing is, is I believe it. I think they could they could be one and done and lose in that first series, or, or I really think they could blow through some really good baseball teams and win it all. They're they're all young and 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 you know. Uh, I always said about me when I started the magazine, you know, I was young and dumb, so I, I didn't know to be scared. And I think a lot of these guys are like that. I think they're yeah. just out there, man. They are having fun and they feel very, very close. There's a lot of love in that clubhouse. And sometimes I think that's what does it. That's where that magic comes from. So, yeah, I'm excited to watch them. And I'll be the first to admit it. It's like, you know, it's been rough being an Oriole fan until the last year. Um, so I've stopped watching them as much as I used to. And, I mean, I was a season ticket holder from – I don't know for how many years, a decade or whatever. Um, and then we, we just got too busy. Um, and then they really started sucking. So I was glad I sold my tickets, but uh, yeah, I think they could go far. And, but at the same time we could talk in two weeks and I'd be like, yeah, it didn't surprise me. You know, <laughs> We'll see, man, their pitchers get hot. I think they could win. But, but also like, even if they, even if they do fizzle this year, they, they, like you said, they got a young core, they could be back next year and the year after, which is kind of oh. cool to see. They've got the number one farm team, and, and you know, they, they've got the, they've got who's going to probably be the American League Rookie of the Year. Um, they've got some just some bona fide studs, so I think they're going to be a force for a while. I think it just happened, you know, it was building, building, and then boom, you know, it's that false overnight success thing. But yeah, I think they're going to be good for a while, and I've been awesome. watching. Now I just lost half our listeners, so my apologies. But because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like baseball, what are, what are the Orioles? <laughs> now, um, without without being too forward, uh, I do wonder if you have both personal or publishing plans to continue the Boogeyman series, and what you can tell us about that. You know what? I don't know. I don't know. I. Uh... You know, the second book certainly ends with an open door to a third book. If if there is more, it'll just be one more book. Um, and that's, you know, I'm saying that as someone who said that, you know, the first was a standalone and there would be no sequel. And then there came a sequel. So I don't know how far I can be trusted, but I was being honest then. Um, and I'm being honest now when I say, you know, the most I can envision is one more book. But, you know, who knows? You know, I, I have a two book deal with Simon Schuster. Um, Becoming the Boogeyman is the first one. I'm probably two or three weeks away from finishing the the second book for that contract. 
And then, um, you know, who knows what happens next? I, oh, well, I do know one thing is I, Billy and I just sold them a book called, you know, uh, the complete widow's point. So that'll be cool. Um, but after that, you know, there's no contract or anything. So now, I mean, if, if the ideal situation would be great to, you know, do another couple books, one of them be book three and then the other one be a standalone, you know, like the one I'm working on now, but who knows what the future holds that I'm hopeful for that. Yeah. No, actually, I wanted to talk about that anyway. Um, you did. You you said that you uh, sold them the complete widow's point, which incidentally has a blurb from Peter Straub in it. Yeah. Uh, tell us tell us a little bit about what we can expect from that. Um, I'm trying to think what I can tell. Um, you know, we sold it on a, on a on a, just a proposal. So there's no, you know other than the first book, there's not a lot down on paper. Um, and we're still in the discussion phase and it's only been, you know, pretty, uh, pretty light because I, uh, you know, he knows I don't want to, he's finishing editing a book and I'm finished writing this book. So I don't want to get into, uh, you know, a whole new storyline, but we'll, uh, you know, we're going to um, pick up right where that first book left off. Um, but with a different, you know, kind of set of characters. I mean, that novella will, le- we'll, we're going to rewrite it, expand it. And that'll serve as like the first third of a, of a cohesive novel. Um so there'll be a little bit of a jump after this book ends and, and, and we'll write it in such a way that it's, that it's much, you know, more natural and organic. And, and then we'll continue the story for another, you know, 60, 70,000 words. Um, but yeah, we can, you know, we plan on, it, it, it'll be in the same vein, you know, and I'm excited because I don't really do a lot of supernatural stuff at all. So kind of going back there and having no rules to follow because anything you can think of, you're like, well, hell it's, it's a ghost or a spirit, man. They do whatever the hell they want. That was really liberating in, in Widow's Point. And again, talk about, you know, when that came out, we just felt like, well, we certainly didn't reinvent the wheel. It's all these old chestnuts of horror, but it worked. You know, you know, we had we heard from a bunch of people who were like, this is the scariest little book we've ever read. So that was nice. And and I think that's what gave us the confidence to kind of continue the story. Yeah. Now, when... <laughs> The way you portray Billy in these books is nine times out of 10, when you mention him, he's up in his room working on a story. Just yeah. you portray him, whether it's, you know, purposefully or not, as this really hardworking writer. Um, and I wonder what it's been like working with him. Um, it's been I mean, it's just been fun. It's been, you know, I mean, to, to have the kid who was like, you know, sitting on my lap or sitting next to me in an easy chair reading, you know, these Ripley, believe it or not, books from a really early age. And then these books are the tales of the unexplained. And then, you know, then we'd start watching these horror films together. His first R-rated movie, his and Noah, um, both my sons, the first R-rated movie they ever watched was uh, Silver Bullet, um, you know, the Stephen King werewolf thing. Um, so that again, like me, they've, they've, you know, a Billy in particular has been this little weirdo right from, you know, early age. <laughs> and, uh, so to be able to write with him has been cool and he, he's much smarter than I am. I mean, he's Christ, they're reading Ulysses for this book club that him and like four of his friends have. And he, you know, I'm the one who skipped all those classes in college to work on the magazine. And, he, and he's the one who actually went and figured out a way to, to make it interesting. And, and, um, yeah, he's written some some pretty cool stuff that people haven't seen yet that I think is going to blow him away. And and uh, yeah, he is. You know, I didn't want him to be too. I didn't want him to have too big of a role in, in the book um, because I thought you know we had enough characters rolling around. I already threw my wife into the fire. 
Um, and, and again, I wanted to portray it as very accurate to how it is. And that's what it is. You know, he, he's got the top of the house is a cool spot. I mean, he's got his own like big sitting room with sofas and all that. And the, a closet that's huge that he's turned into an office and then separate is his bedroom and a bathroom and all that. So he's got kind of his own apartment up there. So, yeah, he's up there working all the time, you know, for his Patreon page. And, and he's he's finished, uh, you know, I don't know, two novels now, I think, and a, a short story collection that's all tied in. You know, the stories are all tied in and stuff that I could have never done in, in my early 20s. So that's the cool thing. And, and Widow's Point's going to be exciting because we haven't, other than short stories, we haven't worked on anything of any length for a while. Um so yeah, it's going to be neat to kind of find who who's going to want to do which parts and 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 just trade it back and forth and um, be challenging to each other. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's it's got to be it's got to be fun. It's got to be exciting. You know, working with someone so close to you, Candace. I'd like to throw it to you. Go right on ahead. Finally, after you stole my question, I am yeah. so sorry. <laughs> Now I have to take us in a new direction. So sure. with that note, um, cemetery dance is huge in the industry itself. But um, what I wanted to ask about right now is the trade paperback line you guys are working on right now, which is doing some amazing things with regards to the indie world. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and like what is the plan for the next year or so and where you kind of see that line moving? Um, you know what? It it it, it is and, and Kevin Lucia, who who is in charge of the paperback line, would 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 echo this. Um, well, at least he would if he was being honest with everybody, which sometimes <laughs> when you work for a company, you kind of, you know, you're not because you don't want to get in trouble. Um, but you know, we're, we're number one, we're really excited about it. We're happy about how it's doing right now. Um, but we're, we're very much in a look and see, you know, situation with it, because I love the fact that we're able to put out quantity Mm -hmm. as well as quality. Um, we're able to get, you know, a really solid mix of titles out there. Um, and also, you know, anthologies, standalone novels, novellas, collections, a little bit of everything, um, which you really can't afford to do in hardcover, especially, you know, limited edition hardcover these days. Um, but we'll just wait and see, you know, wait and see how supported it is by the retailers and, and the individuals. Hopefully it'll continue to do well. Um, you know, cause I've had to rein him in at times. He's thinking three or four years down. Oh, I'm like, stop, stop. Let's just see, you know, let's, let's make sure we're doing this intelligently. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I've been so busy. I haven't been able to, but, you know, I go in there, I deliver checks and I, you know, every once in a while I'll, I'll, I'll help out, but it's really been Dan and Mindy and Kevin and Megan and all the rest of the crew over there. Um, and thank God Brian Freeman's still involved, even though it's just, you know, uh, via, uh, you know, phone and email a couple of times a week. Um, he's got office hours. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let him go away completely. <laughs> you should have him on the show. He hates doing any promoting. I um, think I've asked him before. It was probably oh, two I'm years sure ago. I don't think he replied to that. <laughs> well, you should write him after this and say, listen to Chismore's podcast because he brings you up. He brings up the fact that you're a big fat chicken. and <laughs> But he's doing so many interesting things as a writer and as a publisher. And he probably has tons to talk about that, you know, we don't really text or talk about because we're both so busy. But he'd be a great guest. Um, uh, just and he's, and again, he's someone who genuinely you know, loves this. He worked in a bookstore when he was a teenager. He, you know, he, he, 
he, you know, read those McCammon paperbacks and, you know, was been reading King since he was old enough to read and all that. So he's like, he, his story is very similar to mine where he he's just, he's here for all the right reasons. And he's, and again, he's much smarter than me and a better businessman. Um, but again, he's still, you know, invaluable to Cemetery Dance and he'd be a great guest. And now you can kind of tell him that I called him out on the air and told oh, him. I, that, I am. Um, I guess I'm going to drag him to, I'm going to make him do a signing or two with me. As a matter of fact, I might, cause I've got some Pennsylvania stores trying to get me to add on for, uh, October or November. And maybe I'll get a, maybe I'll do a dual signing. I'll convince them and I can get keen to come to or something. I don't know, but yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Was there a question in there? I can't even remember. Oh, about cemetery dance. Yeah. So the paperback line. Yeah. I, I love the fact that we're able to get at numbers. That's the big thing is, is that we yeah. get out a variety of people because I think that's what we need. Those old paperback houses that don't exist anymore, you know, yeah. that have two new titles every month and that kind of thing. Um, Sound about like zebra. Yeah. Well, even pocket books and yeah. all of them, NAL, yeah. they all had them. Um, but, uh, you know, and Kevin is, is he, he does what a good editor should do. You know, he fights, you know, to get, to get every author, some advertising money and, and, uh, you know, decides where it would be best spent. And, you know, he, he, he uh, certainly has no qualms and, you know, coming to me and saying, Oh, we're everything. having him on before oh, we get lost in anything else. We're going to have him with John Bowden and Bob, uh, Ford. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. They're going to be talking about cemetery dance books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he'll be yeah he'll be the first to tell you. He's like, yeah, it's hard to nail Rich down because he's so busy, and you know sometimes I have to convince him to do this or that. But that's you know that's that's what an editor does with a publisher. He sometimes he has to convince him to to good, to use good sense, and then sometimes the publisher has to say, slow down, and stop spending all my damn money. Um, yeah, I've been I've well, been on the editor end for. <laughs> he's actually spending some of your money on my website. Good. Good. No, you I'm guys wondering. are. Um, Wait, what's your website? Plug it. <laughs> Cemetery Dance is my sponsor for this month for Uncomfortable Dark, and you guys have been since um, June, I think June, July, August, to where I am featuring you guys on the home page, and then there's links and everything to the new releases for the month that he wants out. And then there are featured author interviews with your, your authors and everything. So a little bit of that is actually coming towards Good. <laughs> my site, which actually is a indie for community author review and, and interview web page and all of that. And, I've been running that for like a year now, but he uh, he started working with me on that in June, and we've had a lot of fun with it. So it's been working out nicely. So thanks for that little bit of money and support for my website and helping keep things going for me. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the value of, of having someone like him, Dan Franklin. They both really have, the, you know, their fingers on the pulse of the yeah. job what's going on and and that's wonderful um yeah I, mean, I work with them a lot i'm still a huge fan um i'm still the you know the dummy buying you know old back issues and and you know you know you know different books off ebay you know my wife is constantly what'd you get today um and, <laughs> and that's that, that brother <laughs> the stuff that used to be cheap is no longer cheap that's the thing you no, should these back issues and now people are figuring out that with 
with you know online being such a huge presence the printed stuff is, is become kind of like treasure um yeah but uh but yeah but, but no matter what i just don't you know I, I there's no way i can i can keep up with all of it and and i you know the good and i tell billy all the time i'm like you should kind of dive in this world more and I think at some point he probably will, but he's really smart in that he doesn't want to lose focus and, and he's not paying too much attention to, you know, he supports probably a half dozen Patreon pages. Cause I mean, uh, I, you know, I see the stuff that comes in, um, in his mail and, um, you know, I know he, 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 you know, pokes around social media, but even that every once in a while he'll disconnect from, cause he's just like, man, it's all too distracting. And, and that's smart good. kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Um, so I, I think uh, that'll serve him well in the long run. But, but yeah, but that, again, like I said, that's the cool thing. Dan, you know, Dan Franklin told me to post on, you know, a page yeah. on Facebook, you know, books of horror, I think. And, yeah. and I was like, you know what, let me check it out first before I, you know, and, and I was like, oh, wow, I loved it. You know, yeah. it's a bunch of people, you know, sure. Just like with any other group, you know, you're going to run into an idiot or two, but oh, yeah, was- if you find people who have a similar passion and it's really genuine and, and it's authentic, it, it's just, for me, I love finding those places. Mm-hmm. And that's where they've been able to kind of turn me on to a few places like that, where it's like, yeah, you know, I, I don't care how long it's been around. I don't care how you know polished it is, or, you know, if they like, you know, if, if they still have 10 people posting and saying, I, I can't understand a damn thing Peter Straub has ever you know written. That's all right. <laughs> That's we okay. Gonna, we gonna fight them. Oh yeah, that's okay. Yeah, nah, it's all right, man. I mean, because you know, everybody's got different tastes. I mean, I yeah. I love Peter, but I I haven't read everything he's written. I need yeah. to. Um, but man, that's you talk about. That's an investment. You know, that's not a beach read. At least not for me. You know, your um, books are beach reads. Exactly. I mean, and that's that's the thing. You know what? Boom. When I turned into becoming the boogeyman, the and, and I don't have readers and all that stuff. The only person who had read it when I sent it to my agent was Billy. Um. All I wanted to know was, did it read fast? Because if it read fast, that means it had narrative drive. That meant that, that you know, um, it, you wanted to turn that page to find out what happened next. And that's from, that's the question I asked my agent when she read it, my agent, I mean, my editor, and then the folks he had read it. I'm just, I, that was the first big kind of hurdle I want to I wanna pass is, was it a quick read for you? And, and again, there's many writers who th- that doesn't interest them. They're, if they want to make the reader work and all that. But I know... I, I have to be a page turner and be a beach read if, if, if the book is successful. Yeah, I, if no one's going to um, go, I... I have one more, if I may. Sure. And and you can say no. <laughs> but I have to ask this because I will probably never get the opportunity to ask the man himself or to ever meet him. So I have to kind of do it through you. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> But what was that moment like when you first met Stephen King? You know what? The first time I met him, he invited my wife and I up to um, to New York City. He had a, um, I think it was 25 years. Yeah, it was 25 years. Carrie was published in 74, I think. Is that right? Um, yeah, so so it's 1999. Billy was a baby. This is the first time we left Billy. By, you know, with someone else uh, that both Karen and I had, had left him. Um, so I don't remember how old he was, but he, he you know, he, he wasn't too young. We were, you know, we were, we were late separators with, with our baby, but um, I just remember that was the case. And uh, he invited, he had a big 25th anniversary party at Tavern on the Green for uh, Carrie. And 
in addition to cool people like, you know, Kathy Bates and all these, you know, superstars, Sam and Rushdie and, and all these people, um, he invited me and Kara. And uh, that was the first time I met him was out on the dance floor. Um, and he just turned around and he's like, Rich, you're the man. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he sent me the most awesome books. You know, that was cool. Um <laughs> But it was, you know, it, it was a big party and, and there wasn't a lot of time to talk. Um, the, the biggest moment for me, um, a couple of them. One is the, the first time I went and visited him down in Florida and uh, I was down there for a film festival and he picked me up at this Sarasota, this really cool Sarasota hotel that I didn't know. He pulled up in a convertible <laughs> and I got in and, you know, he gave me a hug and he said, this is where uh, um, Black House was born. I was like, what? He goes, this is where Peter stayed. And, and I, I would come here and he would come to the house. We'd take turns and we wrote, you know, we wrote together for different sections. Wow. Like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so that was just neat. That was a surreal car ride. We went and picked up a soda at a gas station and then we went to a bookstore and uh, then we went back to his house and hung, but uh, yeah, just, but just bizarre. Just you yeah. know, what, what the hell am I doing here? And then, you know, another time he, he invited me to a couple of movie premieres up in Bangor um once i went with uh with kara and billy i think and then the other time was me billy and noah mm -hmm. and again you know you just go and you hang out and you, you know i went to dinner with with him and you know maybe 10 or 12 of us ahead of time and then went to the premiere and you just you know you're like what the hell am i doing here <laughs> but but you know what after a while you, you stop thinking that because he is just a really cool guy and he's normal yeah. and he's, you know you look at him he's wearing jeans and tennis sneakers just like you and, and uh, <laughs> goes out of his way to make you feel comfortable and and yeah i mean just you know great guy i just but it's still you know it's just still weird for the guy who grew up you know with, with one of this guy's paperbacks in his back pocket all the time yeah hanging out with them or, or publishing them or texting with them or, you know, and at the top of that pyramid is writing with them is still <laughs> yeah. all the time by reporters and by media people. And I, I, I always just say the word is ridiculous. That is the best word to describe what it's like, what I think about the situation, the, pro, you know, all of it is just, it's freaking ridiculous that, that, you know, <clears throat> a constant reader, you know, normal dude got a chance to, you know, write with him and was trusted to yeah. to go to Castle Rock and Derry and all these places that, that lived in his head. So, yeah, long-winded answer to your question, but he, he deserves it. Okay. He, Thank he's, you. He's a cool dude. He he's um he's the reason why I write. Like I stumbled on King when I was about ten, and I own everything he's ever written. I've read everything he's ever written back to back to back to back to back repeatedly. Like he would be my number one like person to ever meet in life. But it'll probably never happen. So well, no, so so with everything you just said, it, 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 I, I could say the exact same thing. Um, so now imagine you writing with him. That's how ridiculous it is. <laughs> yeah, no. you and I are the same. You and I are the same, and he is not. Yeah, so, um, that yeah. would just be amazing. But yeah, yeah. Thank you. Oh, no, my pleasure. I always, you know, I'm always happy. People are always, oh, you probably don't want to hear this. I'm like, you know what? He's such a great guy that, uh, and, and those, you know, I, I'm way past the, you know, Steve, you're great. Cause he would just be like, Rich, shut up. <laughs> you know, I mean, I texted him a couple of days ago and said, Hey, the Red Sox were eliminated from playoffs, you know, and I got back. Ooh, up. Got you, you back, know? Brandon. Well, actually got yeah. us back. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I knew that. Trust me, I got plenty of texts. In, in, we, we were fucking past. awful this year. We deserved to. <laughs> guys stop baseball talk you lose I the got, audience <laughs> i got plenty of, of texts from him over the years was you know sorry the red Sox swept the o's not <laughs> so so yeah um have you guys seen before we go because i gotta go but have you seen those pictures that i posted in the past of steve with an oreo hat yeah and you, i don't think so you, you you had a socks hat on i had a socks hat on a one but it in the the infamous group of photos, one he has the Orioles hat on his hanging on his bedpost. Yeah, another one. Uh, he's wearing, where he has it on a grill or something. Yeah, another one. He's, <laughs> he's dipping his legs in the pool when he's wearing it, and then and the last one he's got it on the 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 grill tongs and he's putting mm-hmm. it in the grill. And that that all those were a result of a bet he lost that I don't remember what yeah. year. <laughs> it was whoever had the best uh, regular season record. The loser had to wear the 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 other guy's hat and and send yeah. graphic evidence. So that's hilarious. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this has been great. We really appreciate your time. Uh, do you want to spare a few a minute for final thoughts? Anyone? I don't want to. I don't want to cut anyone off. I'll start with you, Rich. Any final thoughts, sir? No, no. Just uh, I appreciate everybody who you know supports CD and and myself yeah. as a writer and. Uh, um, you know, you guys make it so I can do can do this for a living and have for 35 years. So very lucky guy and, and very grateful. Mm, absolutely. Candace. Just want to say thank you and for all the um stories about Steve and for the book. And hey, just keep on doing what you are for yourself and for the horror <clears throat> community as a whole, because it's fantastic. Thank you. Brennan. Uh, obviously, Rich, thank you for your time. As always, uh, becoming the boogeyman is awesome. Um, October 10th is my birthday. Thank you for the birthday oh, present. Oh. Appreciate it. Um, and beyond that, I think you, this is your third appearance here. I think this is. is the least amount of fart jokes we've ever made. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. We we did make fart jokes on like one of my appearances because I I remember Patrick was yeah. like so shocked. I think he thought I was. I have no idea how how he thought coming in I was going to be like too too grown up for that. But yeah, I no, absolutely. Really, like this is shocking. Very naive move. No, not there really. There we go. Uh, at least one Patrick. Yeah. Final thoughts. <laughs> my final thoughts are: I have repeatedly told my son when he tells me he farts, he's starting to half, and I uh, say farts are always funny, Philip. And I always think of you, no bullshit, because of that conversation <laughs> where oh. you, I'm pretty sure that's what you said. Farts are funny, but you said it in oh. such a way where you're like, it's a fact, but. Um, oh, I, I, hey, my wife walks in a room. If I am laughing hysterically, she she knows TikTok farts. <laughs> yep. Simple that as that. Sense. If I am laughing to like, I can't stop myself laughing. Like I sound 12 years old and just, you know, it, it just ecstatic and and so happy it's because i'm watching you know one of those stupid tiktoks with the guy farting and the people walking by jerking their heads back and making faces and yeah she just shakes her head and and i I know at some point she's like if all your readers knew and i'm like oh i tell them (laughs) they know i tell them i you know i hope someone farts at one of my signings and i can laugh there you know Mm because i'm not you know i'm not above it so anyway on that note i think that you have that is the the note yeah you have all the traits that remain happy forever so that's wonderful um appreciate your time rich 
you run Thank another you. amazing Thanks book. a lot. Thank you all. Have a good night. It made sure Thanks, you you yes. Thanks for picking us. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. Bye. All right, bye. bye.